It's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Hello, it's Aaron. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you all for listening. The number of you out there continue to grow, and I appreciate uh, all of you who've left a rating on iTunes uh, or wherever else you're listening to podcasts. If you haven't done that yet, please do leave your honest rating about what you think of the podcast because it really helps with discoverability. I guess I'm still continuing on with this urban world, urban church thing. I have a ton of thoughts on cities because essentially cities have been my professional domain uh, for quite a while now. This one is less about the church, although there's sort of an implications for the church in it, and more about the nature of the cities in general. And a lot of the um, kind of call it progressive rhetoric, policy ideas, etc., come out of these big global coastal cities like New York, D.C., San Francisco, etc. And one of the things that's you know, I think a lot of people get it, but is is not necessarily as well known as it should be, is that a lot of this stuff is just frankly totally self-interested uh, from the people who are promoting it. And I just want to highlight one example of that today, and that is the fact that all of these cities are built intrinsically today on some sort of a labor exploitation model. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is the people who live in these cities who are in, call it the upper middle class to the wealthy are different because they can actually afford to pay for real things. But the people who are in sort of that, you know, top 25% to top, you know, 3% uh, type of range um, really depend on having an underpaid, exploited, largely immigrant labor class to even be able to afford to live in many of these cities. One of the ones that it is very clear on this, for example, uh, is nannies. Now, there aren't necessarily, uh, you know, there are a lot of single people in these cities. There are predominantly singles, but there are a lot of people with kids. Uh, the Upper West Side of New York, where I used to live, is kind of a strollerville. They call these neighborhoods strollervilles. They have huge numbers of young children usually under the age of five. So when they get school age, people are gone. When uh, when we had a kid uh, there, people kept asking, so are you going to stay in the city? Or are you going to leave? And I just said to them, I don't um, I don't plan to go anywhere, uh, but if you take a look around, uh, odds are by the time uh, Alex's school age will be gone. And, uh, you know, you look at the statistics, wouldn't you know, uh, that's what ended up happening. So a lot of people who live there have to have nannies or they don't have to have but they choose to have nannies you know they've got dual career uh you know families uh sometimes they don't they they don't want to give up you know for example the wife's job in other cases they just flat out need two incomes 
in order to be able to survive in New York. And the reality is that about 90%, I'm not exaggerating, 90% of the nannies on the Upper West Side are immigrant women. A lot of them are very underpaid. The majority of them are paid cash under the table. Um, if if you're not familiar with that, I think it was a scandal back in the Clinton administration that became known as Nannygate, um, where somebody that had been nominated for a position um, was discovered to have not paid taxes uh, for for their nanny, and uh, you know now it was kind of became established and it's pretty well known that if you have a nanny that you employ, you were supposed to be reporting that income to the federal government, you were supposed to be withholding taxes and all of that stuff. And you know what? Virtually none of these people are doing it. Why? Because once you start adding all the tax withholdings, once you start adding in, you know, the unemployment, all this stuff, they basically can't afford it, right? So they're, they're, they're paying people in, under the table. So essentially, they are dependent on this, um, you know, underpaid, exploited immigrant labor in order for them to even live in the city. Again, this doesn't apply to the truly wealthy. A truly wealthy person could afford to pay full freight for a essentially, you know, American-born nanny um, if they wanted to. But most people who live in a place like New York are actually not rich. They may be making, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year or something like that, uh, maybe less. I mean, a surprising number of these people, even though their income may seem high, sort of by by the standards of the rest of the country, are essentially middle class in these places. And so they simply cannot afford to pay what it would take to hire, you know, a non-immigrant person and pay them the way they're supposed to be paying them. And this is, and by the way, I mean, this applies in the church. I think it would be very interesting to ask these church uh, churches, okay, of the people in your congregation with nannies, how many of them are paying a living wage and um, paying all the taxes they're supposed to be doing, providing benefits, etc.? I would suggest almost none of them um, are, are doing that. So they, they essentially have to have kind of a no-benefit, under-the-table labor class. And oh, by the way, these, these um, immigrant nannies, some of them are ignoring their own kids, um, in order in order to to care for other people's kids, this is repeated in almost every domain. In a lot of these places, you know, there's just a tradition and almost a necessity of hiring people to do things for you. For example, the building that I lived in did not have laundry, so it's not just a matter that my apartment didn't have a, a washer and dryer in it. The building didn't. That is extremely common. Tons of buildings in New York do not have laundry, so you need to send your laundry out to be done. And so you look at that, like it's like you think that, oh, it's it's expensive, the rent is expensive. The rent's definitely expensive, but when you start adding on the fact that you have to pay someone to do your laundry for you, which for me was almost to the tune of 200 bucks a month, by the way, it's like, man, that is getting expensive. And again, who's doing all the laundry? It's very low-paid immigrant workers. You see the same thing going on with all the food delivery, all these services, the Uber drivers, the DoorDash people. Um, They are all um, predominantly immigrants. Uh, Many of them are in very poor working condition, gig economy jobs, no benefits, etc. Even here, and this this is even true in Indy, 
Um, you know, most people would do their own grocery shopping, for example, but during kind of the pandemic, people would start ordering food and ordering groceries. And, you know, you know, my wife even made this observation. She was saying, look, um, I see all these people who are kind of like so proud of themselves that they're socially distancing and they're wearing masks and doing all this stuff. And yet they're all ordering their groceries for delivery. So in essence, they're like, I'm going to stay here, uh, safe at home, doing all my work on Zoom. And I'm going to let someone else risk their life for very, very low wages to go shopping for me and deliver the stuff to my grocery store so I don't have to do it. And that is essentially what relying on all these delivery services has come to mean. Um, you You know, again, life in the city where lots of things get delivered, where you need to purchase a lot of services. Um, if, if you were paying a living wage to the people who are doing it, then um, you probably, a great number of people certainly, would not be able to afford to live in the city. For a lot of people, this is really the difference between them being able to afford to live in the city and not afford to live in the city. The reality is, now, I didn't have a nanny. I didn't order delivery that that often. But the same thing, frankly, was even true true of myself, right? It's like if I had been paying living wage um, salaries to all the workers who were servicing me, they're like, how much more would I need to make to even live in the city? And again, this is this is something that is true of all of us in society. It's very difficult to disentangle ourselves from you know, child or, or exploited labor in China that's building the products, um, you know, from, you know, industrial agricultural processes that we might not like. Um, you know, the, the whole system is such that essentially it is it is almost impossible to avoid getting implicated in it. But for people who live in these cities, uh, it is a much more, you know, personal and, uh, y- you know, direct uh, involvement in some of these things because it literally makes the difference between whether they are able to live there uh, or not live there. And this is especially true for a lot of these new services like Uber or, again, the, the all the grocery delivery companies, the food delivery companies. You know, some of the old service class labor in these cities had actually unionized and had some protections and some benefits. So, for example, if you look at a doorman type building, the doormen are unionized. The people who work in hotels are unionized. And a lot of, a lot of them, uh, you know, were, um, you know, long kind of longstanding kind of, kind of New York residents. Now it's, it's increasingly, I think people have turned to immigrant labor because they are the people to whom this represents an economic opportunity to them. I'm going to be able to get my foot in the door in the United States and, you know, I'm willing to accept essentially second class, second rate wages and working conditions in order to do that. Well, I think, you know, you you might even make an argument that that is a worthwhile trade off if it is the foot in the door and the path up on the escalator. Similar things happened with the Ellis Island uh, generations of immigrants where there was sort of a an, an escalator. People started off in kind of these these overcrowded immigrant ghettos over time, you know, the children and the grandchildren ended up in the middle class on Long Island. That is much less the case today. Yes, there are the children of some of these immigrants uh, from China or from, you know, maybe maybe India, Bangladesh, 
who test into Stuyvesant, go there, and then move on to Harvard. It's like, truly like an astonishing, you know, inspiring story. I mean, I know multiple people personally who were either um, came to New York as very young children or are children of immigrants who ended up doing that exact very path. But for most people today, that is not really happening because we have an economy that's only rewarding people who are able to essentially get to to the to the top of the heap. It's it's very hard to get an escalator going in many of these places. So they have essentially very large, um, economically marginal, essentially underclass, um, economically underclass populations, and that's one reason there have been so much. Uh, political unrest in these cities. Uh, Bill de Blasio was able to get elected um, mayor of New York because he talked about there's two New Yorks, right? There's the New York for the rich, there's the New York for the Manhattans, for the Brooklyns, and there's kind of the New York for everybody else where people are falling behind. And in fact, um, you know, that that was actually a lot of truth to that. The truth is there there is kind of new there is a, a lot of New York. We do have cities today that are increasingly made up of of rich people uh, and poor people, and not a lot in between, and and not the old escalator that they used to be. Uh, maybe the most famous book written about cities uh, in America was called "The Death and Life of Great American Cities" by Jane Jacobs, and you know she said cities don't attract the middle class; they create the middle class. That is, if you're poor. You move to the city, you find economic opportunity, you move up. And indeed, that does happen for some people. Um, but for a lot of folks uh, uh, who are not going to make that leap, uh, you know, directly from essentially the, you know, the bottom third of the income spectrum all the way up until, the, say, the top third, if you can't make that leap directly through, you know, again, testing into one of the selective high schools or something like that, then you and your children and your grandchildren are just going to be mired in poverty uh, or sort of working class existence uh, for quite some time. The San Francisco Fed did a did a, a study. I think it's called the Color of Money. It may be called the Color of Wealth in Los Angeles, and it was essentially a look at the um, you know the economic status of various immigrant and ethnic populations in Los Angeles. You should look it up. It is a fantastic study. And one of the things that they discovered was that the median, you know, household net worth of someone of Mexican ancestry in Los Angeles is zero, right? Zero. The median, and that's not, that's not even just, um, you know, people who are immigrants. It is people who are the children of immigrants. They're, we're talking about, uh, you know, second, third generation. If your if your kind of ethnic background was identified as Mexican, your, your media the median net worth was zero. And so, yes, there are definitely like middle class, wealthy um, Hispanics in some of these cities. I think that overlooks the fact that there has essentially become a multi generational, entrenched lower middle class populations that do a tremendous amount of the grunt work and the service work in order to allow these people who are the kind of the, the upper middle class type people, A, to survive in the city, that's just number one, to even to be able to afford to live there, which if they were paying full freight for the stuff, they wouldn't, or to allow them to essentially have servants. You know, pre, in the pre-war America, you know, the wealthy had a lot of servants. As we moved into the sort of the post-war era, you know, it, it became too too economically impractical 
to hire servants because people could make good money in the economy. You had essentially the family wage, you know, for men who were who were in the workforce, and so a lot of wives didn't work, that sort of thing. So there are just fewer and fewer and fewer servants. Well, today, you know, the kind of upper middle class person in a place like New York has tons and tons and tons of servants. Maybe they're not a permanent staff you know, dressed up in a British butler uniform, but they've got people cleaning their apartment for them. They've got people doing their nails for them. The, the, basically, the uh, the nail industry is another one that relies uh, very, very heavily on exploited immigrant labor. The New York Times did a big uh, series on that. I think there's some questions about whether they got it totally right. They may have exaggerated, yeah, but certainly some directionally correct there. You know, they they do the laundry for them. They deliver their food for them. Uh, they, they drive them around town. The, the quantity of people you are hiring today in these cities to provide essentially personal services uh, and, the quantity, and, the, and the share of those people who are being paid a below living wage, many of them exploited immigrants, uh, is, is really something else. I mean, you go, back to, you go back to even the 80s, you know, when I grew up, very few people paid to have their, their 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 have manicures and stuff done. Well, now it's just people just expect that to happen, right? They who nobody was hiring people to clean their houses back then. Everybody cleaned their own house. Well, now you expect to have someone to clean your apartment for you, and so essentially, they are they've got servants, and you know those servants uh, they can't really afford to have servants, so they need this this exploited labor class, and and so when when you hear the celebration of immigration in these cities, I think one thing to just keep in mind is, you know, for for the people who are promoting this, they personally depend not just on immigrants, but on an immigrant class that's paid sub-living wages, often under the table, zero benefits, no taxes, no unemployment, maybe even a gig economy worker who's technically doesn't even have a job, right, in order for them to enjoy the lifestyle that they have or even to potentially to even remain in these cities. And where I think the church, uh, maybe there's an implication for the church here, is I don't hear a lot of sermons about, man, maybe we should be paying people a living wage. Maybe there should be better working conditions. Yeah, there's some more progressive churches um, that are doing that, um, to be sure, Uh not necessarily as many as you, as you might think. Almost all the rhetoric I hear about this comes out of essentially like the uh, kind of the new socialist left, if you will. It's like, hey, we need to make sure that we have, you know, you know, high minimum wages. We need to make sure we've got, um, you know, uh, you know, sick leave and things like that. And that's where I think, you know, conservatives traditionally, you know, oppose that stuff. I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily a uh, opposed to, to things that say, no, you cannot exploit your workers. I think we need to have maybe a little more economic regulation in that. But you're not hearing, where is the moral denunciation of people who are, you know, underpaying people, not paying their taxes? And especially many of them are sitting right there in the congregation participating in this. And I again, I notice when you hear all this talk about doing justice, the justice that they say should be done is a highly selective form of justice uh, that does not involve, in many cases, rejecting, repudiating, and repenting of the very forms of injustice being perpetrated by people um, in those congregations or denouncing the types of systems of, of labor exploitation, for example, on which the life of these cities has grown very dependent. 
So I think anytime you start hearing people talk about anything coming out of these cities, you just got to ask yourself, how does this affect them personally? And I think one of the things you will see is it often benefits them personally and almost never does it disadvantage them personally. Uh, and that's just one of the things we have we have to keep in mind uh, as we think about it. So uh, I think it's I think it's a worthwhile question. Maybe we should be asking these churches to to survey their members and say how many of you are are like withholding all your taxes for your nannies and giving vacations and and paying a living wage and all that. I think the results might be interesting. Anyhow, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.